0: Good evening everyone, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Stuart Baines, the Library's Assistant Director of Community Outreach. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for for this land we are now privileged to call home. It's great to see um, a lovely audience um, here tonight. Even my efforts to coerce people into the front row did not work just like high school, no one wants to sit in the front row, but I will forgive you tonight. I'm delighted that so many of you are here um, to hear from award-winning Australian author, historian, journalist and publisher, Paul Hamm. Paul specialises in the 20th century history of war, politics and diplomacy. His books have received critical acclaim in Britain and in Australia. After working as a journalist in London in 1992, he co-founded a financial newsletter publishing company whose titles included Governance the Money Laundering Bulletin, which he sold in 1997. For part of that period, Paul Paul also worked part-time as the editor of Amnesty, the magazine of the British headquarters of Amnesty International. So he clearly was not very busy. On his return to Australia in 1998, Ham was appointed the Australian correspondent for the London Sunday Times. Paul is, of course, an author. It would take too much time to list all of his works, awards and nominations. But it all started extremely well with his first book, Kokoda, published in 2004, being shortlisted for the Walkley Award for non-fiction and the New South Wales Premier's Prize for non-fiction. Sandican, the untold story of the Sandican death marches, was published in 2012 and was shortlisted for the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award for History. In 2010, Paul co-wrote and presented the documentary All the Way, based on the history of the Vietnam War, In 2012, he set up an electronic publishing business, Ham Press, which publishes e-books, audio books and short films. His latest book, Passchendaele, Requiem for Doomed Youth, tells the story of ordinary men in the grip of a political and military power struggle. A struggle that determined their fate and has foreshadowed the destiny of the world for a century. Like his preceding work, Passchendaele is engrossing and sometimes confronting, It challenges us as readers, not just providing an insight into the most horrific chapter in what was a horrific war, but asks us the questions, did this need to happen? Joining Paul this evening is Jack Waterford, Australian journalist, commentator and former editor for the Canberra Times. For most of you, if you are locals, you do not need this introduction. Jack is well known for his long-spanning career in journalism, beginning with the Canberra Times in 1972. Jack worked his way through the ranks to become its editor-in-chief in 2001. Jack was made a member of the Order of Australia for the Services to Journalism in 2007 and in the same year was named Canberra Citizen of the Year. Could you all please welcome Paul Hamm and Jack Waterford? Thank you.
1: Paul, in introducing you tonight with a book about events that were 99 years ago i thought i might start with events that are about 290 years ago the battle of blenheim and a poem written about 190 years ago after blenheim which begins with a child walking around in the garden and tripping over a large round object and he takes it to the grandfather who says Oh, to some poor fellow's skull, says he, who fell in the great victory. I find them in the garden, for there's many here about, and often when I go to plough, the ploughshare turns them out. For many thousand men, said he, were slain in that great victory. Now tell us what was all about, young Peter, he cries, and little Wilhelmine looks up with wonder-waiting eyes. Now tell us all about the war and what they fought each other for. It was the English, Casper cried, who put the French to rout, but what they fought each other for, I could not well make out. But everybody said, quoth he, it was a famous victory. My father lived in Blenheim then, yon little stream hard by. They burnt his dwelling to the ground and he was forced to fly. So with his wife and child he fled, nor had he where to rest his head. With far and sword, the country round was wasted far and wide and many a childing mother then and newborn baby died but things like that you know must be after every famous victory. They say it was a shocking sight after the field was won for many thousand bodies here lay rotting in the sun but things like that you know must be after a famous victory. And everybody praised the Duke who this great fight did win but what good came of it at last quoth little peterkin why that i cannot tell said he but it was a famous victory what good came out of passion and what was it all about um well, firstly thank you very much <laughs> for
2: having me at the national library today and you, you 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 cast my mind back 290 years i'm trying to gather my thoughts <laughs> uh,
1: um
2: uh of course Universal truths come down to us from uh, Robert Southey and um, and poets, uh, certainly the Romantic poets as well. Um, you, know, you just have to look at Shelley's poetry, yeah. and, and and he's obviously the most radical of them all. But I, uh, what good came of Passchendaele? That's the goes to the heart of, of my book. the question, really. The book asks is is how this slaughter, four month slaughter from July to November, nineteen seventeen. A pure, the purest form of attrition. What good came of it? And the extraordinary thing is, the jury's still out. We've still got books championing Passchendaele as as a necessary battle, as worth it, because it ground the Germans down, it pinned them down in Flanders, it it gave the French time to recover. You have to remember they'd been fighting at the Battle of Verdun for most of 1916. They were crushed. They were in a state of mutiny. Or or not so much mutiny, but mass desertion. Um, many of them refused to fight. They were they were uh, uh, they were exhausted. Um, the extraordinary thing then is: Do we are we therefore condemned to fight Passchendaele, to fight Haig's war of attrition, which led to uh, 270,000 Commonwealth soldiers dead, wounded, missing in action uh, for that purpose, and my answer is no. I believe that it was utterly futile, a monumental failure, and almost lost us the war, because at the end of it, we had never seen the morale of the Commonwealth armies so badly damaged, um, utterly broken. The New Zealand army is a particular example. It was the, their worst afternoon of their, in their history it was in October, where they lost thousands, needlessly being sent into battle on the orders of General Godley, who knew that they were going to die, who knew that they were going to be wounded in massive numbers, uh, as a percentage of their population, certainly, um, and they never forgot it. Um, The Anzacs, the Australians as well, similarly sent into battle without artillery support, mown down beneath Passchendaele Ridge in the mud, unable to move, uh, some of them crawling into battle, um, blown into shell holes and drowning. Uh, This went on and on and on. And uh, the book really charts the futility of this battle. Did it do what the, the apologists say it did? Did it pin the, the Germans down in Flanders? Did it allow the French time to recover? Well, there's no evidence of the French generals. There's no evidence of Foch or Marshal Pétain pleading or begging or asking Haig to prosecute the Flanders offensive. So that kills off that particular case for the battle. Uh, David Lloyd George himself said at the end of it, this almost lost us the war. In the extent to which it killed our our armies, it it severely damaged our armies and crushed our morale. So I'm sort of giving you, I suppose, the conclusion of the book. But to get to that point, we need to navigate the various justifications, the various narratives, the various streams of thought which were going through the generals' heads, uh, the extent to which they were reduced to helpless pawns to some extent. And I actually say in the book, of what value were Haig's or or Ludendorff's or Ruprecht's characters in a battle where they were helpless to change the nature of the conflict beyond pure attrition? And to finish, Mm. (laughs) if I may, because it was a vast question, we need to understand what pure war of attrition means. And I'm sure many of you uh, uh, you are avid readers of military history. But I mean, many of my audiences, I ask you, you, what do you understand by a war of attrition? And it certainly wasn't the kind of war that Haig had presented to the War Cabinet, which was a battle of territorial gain, that he was going to take out the submarine bases on the Belgian coast and drive the Germans out of Belgium. But when that failed, it degenerated into his second case for Passchendaele and for the Somme, which was pure attrition, meaning, of course, that the, the epic casualty lists were not some sort of accident or blunder. They were planned for. That was built into the equation of attrition. It was about a war of the body count. Can we kill them at a faster rate than they can kill us? That is what attrition means. And in fact, they said during quiet times, the normal wastage, as they referred to casualties on the Western Front, would be five to 7,000 per week. During the Somme and during Passchendaele, the normal wastage, to use the grotesque euphemism of the time, was twenty to 50,000 casualties per week. Planned, expected,
1: anticipated. And proof, if anything, that you were being fair dinkum about it <coughs> instead of mucking around. <coughs> That's right. I mean, Haig himself uh, chastised some
2: units for not sustaining enough casualties because it showed a want of offensive spirit. Uh, during the Somme in September, he, he actually berated one of his generals, saying "But they only lost a 1,000. They couldn't have been... So this is the kind of war that was being fought. and I don't think it's really being spelt out as clearly as it should be Too. To, to, to a hundred years later. I mean, I think now's the time to really
1: confront what it was all about. Um. Yeah. Well, in the book, the w- as you <coughs> say, you, to some extent we're starting at the end, but no. the book also is a chronicle of another battle, a battle for influence, power, and about the summonsing together of the resources that make that battle. You have a new Prime Minister in Lloyd George who mm-hmm. says that he's not going to be the butcher's boy driving cattle towards the slaughter. Yeah. But but at the end of the day, he's doing precisely that for political rather than military or uh, or strategic
2: reasons. Oh, hey, um, Lord George knew it was failing, the Battle yes. of Passchendaele. He could see the casualty lists. It was degenerating into the worst kind of slaughter, which, which he'd said at the end of 1916, there'd be no more psalms when he yes. becomes Prime Minister. No more psalms. I will not be the butcher's boy, driving man to the slaughter. And of course, Passchendaele became just that. So it is a, is a question which, again, goes to the heart of the book, is the overriding political narrative. Betw- the relationship between, if you can call it the a relationship, the, the hatred, the mutual loathing between Lloyd George and Douglas Haig. And that goes to the heart of Passchendaele. And it exacerbates the fact that they fell out and are hardly communicating. It goes to the heart of why Passion that was such a tragedy? Because it needlessly prolonged the battle. Uh, these two men were very proud men. They, uh, Lord George had, had brutally used his general in ways that would astonish us today. I mean, he went behind Haig's back to hand control of the British and Dominion armies to the French in April 1917. An extraordinary thing. That is the extent to which he was going to take the command of the war on the Western Front out of the bl- blood-drenched hands of General Field Marshal Haig and into the hands of the French. That's the extent to which he was prepared to go, to stop it. But he didn't stop Passchendaele. Yes. Now, I, just I haven't to answered say, that point yet, but
1: it's... Uh, I was just going to cut in there when you sort of said that we couldn't imagine today. We couldn't imagine, for example, that a blamey would sacrifice Australian generals to <coughs> satisfy American ones, would we? Could we? <laughs> well...
2: Uh, Good point. I've addressed <laughs> that in Kokoda. <laughs> yes. Shall we talk about Kokoda? No, no, no. I'm just,
1: uh, you, you were saying <laughs> that. The co- but uh, yes. a nice edit, <laughs> <Yes>. Jack. <laughs> um, the battle mm. over the resources. Mm. Mm. And the point reached, in effect, where it is perfectly clear that Lloyd George knows that this is a senseless slaughter, mm. and a battle that they're losing. But he doesn't act. Why doesn't he act?
2: All right. Um, so, because he wants to yeah. give
1: rope. Well,
2: he knew that they were losing the war, but he he wanted it to be seen to be Haig's loss. This is my conclusion. This yeah. from an enormous amount of work and research, looking at the human factor of this of this war and the and the brutal politics at the highest level. Mm. You you can't. Help and, and Lord George actually says this in his memoirs. You, you may have read his extraordinary memoir. One chapter is called the the, the the campaign of the mud, a whole chapter devoted to Passchendaele. He lived for decades after the war, bearing the guilt of Passchendaele with him. And it was guilt. He was a, he was stricken by this. He was he was um, he was deeply torn by what happened at Passchendaele. He hadn't acted. Now, why did he not? I mean, his answer is that he would have been, you know. Um, Hung, drawn, and quartered by the uh, the conservatives in, coali- in his coalition, the press would have attacked him as uh, uh, as a meddling politician, thwarting the uh, the generals uh, generals' battle, their their strategies, um, and and so that's how he justified it of not intervening. Now, had he intervened, he certainly would have been seen to be um, stopping the battle at the at the at the most critical point, which is on October the ninth thereabouts. The worst month, the cruelest month, as I call it, quoting T.S. Eliot, of course, um, that was the the moment where they may have stopped it. And all the historians of Passchendaele say, why didn't he stop at that point? That was the point they were sitting uh, beneath Passchendaele Ridge in the mud, um, being... The the Germans were coming out of their cement pillboxes and just picking them off with rifles and and laughing about it, pretty much. I mean, they were astonished. They weren't going to waste their machine gun ammunition on an army that had been bogged down, literally. Nobody stopped it. Um... Lloyd George felt that if he had stopped it then, he would have been pilloried by the press and he would have been um, gone down in history, perhaps possibly as the man who had stopped the war at a moment when Haig was saying... And remember, the politicians didn't know the precise conditions at the front at that time. They weren't getting, very, they were getting all the casualties, but they didn't know exactly what was happening beneath Pattendale Ridge at that moment. Had he stopped it, Haig would have been able to say, well, you, you, stopped, you thwarted our hopes... Of, of overrunning Passchendaele Ridge, securing a jumping-off point for the resumption of battle in 1918, even getting to the coast—who was to know? I mean, they didn't know, to, a, to an extent, what was going to happen next. Of course, Haig knew. Haig knew that he was bogged down; he couldn't move. But that was essentially the reason that, that Lloyd George refused to intervene. He was not going to—he um, uh, was not going to intervene in a battle where he knew he would be the the punching bag of both the Conservatives in Parliament and the press.
1: He stopped and let Haig then lose it. But Haig, at the same time, Mm. a little bit like Montgomery in a war later, was continually redefining what the objectives of the war was about and continually insisting that everything was going as planned and that we were doing really quite well regardless. But even by his own standards, as defined in advance... He wasn't doing that well, was he? He wasn't grinding... De- he wasn't <laughs> killing more Germans... No, no. no ..than no. he was uh, losing himself. P- perhaps uh,
2: to, to take your question in the broader context... Yes. Uh, y- y- ..you may well know that the original case for Passchendaele... It wasn't Passchendaele Ridge about that. That was just the first stage in a massive offensive, the Flanders Offensive of 1917, which would crash out of Ypres, or Wipers, as Tommy's called it, and uh, take Passchendaele, the, these ridges... Which were radiating east and northeast of the, the city of Ypres. and then he would he would steer northeast, charge to the coast, seize the submarine bases, the German submarine bases at Ostend and Zeebrugge. Uh, this was how he presented it to cabinet in June 1917, and it was approved on those ba- that basis. Uh, of course, from those submarine bases, the Germans were waging unlimited submarine warfare, U-boat warfare on the on Allied neutral shipping, so they needed to be seized. And then he would sweep towards. Towards Holland and drive the Germans out of Belgium. This was a fantastically ambitious plan. Um, the was
1: only an extra 500,000 soldiers.
2: Only, that's what they, one, one of his generals actually said. It would probably, no, was it was one of the cabinet uh, ministers actually said, um, probably only take five, Milner, I think, it would cost 500,000 troops only. Mm. So this was the plan. Um, it took them four months. that was to p- supposed to be in his hands within a matter of a couple of weeks. It took four months. Now, you've got to remember, Passchendaele is eight kilometres northeast of Ypres. It took them four months to get to Passchendaele with 270,000 Allied casualties and 217,000 German casualties. So, in other words, once the war had been bogged down, he then reverted to his secondary justification for the battle, which he didn't inform the War Cabinet about, which was the War of Attrition, which was the Wearing Down War, as he he called it after the Somme. Mm -hmm. And that was about, literally, as I've said earlier, Wearing down the German morale, killing them at a faster rate than they were killing us. Now, of course, we, were losing, we lost the body count, to put it brutally, at Passchendaele. They killed more of us than we killed of them. But in Haig's mind, and he called it, the, the, he called it the, the same, well, far worse casualties after this. So he said th- these were not extreme, given the nature of the battle. Um, what, um, what Haig knew was that he could draw ultimately on a far deeper pool of manpower. So the pure mathematics were in his favour. It was once the French were steadily recovering, and in fact they were recovering at a fast, far faster rate than, uh, than Foch and Pétain had, had, uh, had informed Haig, but it served their purposes to tell him to exaggerate that they were pretty well still broken. Um, and the Americans were coming, because once, once the uh, Germans launched unlimited submarine warfare, the Germans entered, the, the Americans entered the war. So in other words, he knew he had these vast armies ultimately to draw on. So he'd keep bashing away, Using the only armies he had at his disposal—the British, the ANZACS, and the Canadians—and a small South African brigade—and mm-hmm. so that's um, basically what happened. He knew that he would just keep pounding away until the bigger armies arrived. So, although he lost the body count, it didn't really matter in the, in the, in the, in the, to him and to many of the generals in the ultimate. Uh, and I say, w- when I say it didn't really matter, let's. Clarify that. Obviously, the generals weren't butchers. They cared deeply about the loss of their men. Haig was a regular visitor to the the, the, uh, field hospitals. Uh, He devoted his life to veterans' families after the war. But strategically at the time, this was the cost of attrition. Massive casualties. This was their duty, to give their lives to a war
1: of pure wearing down. And yet, if all he wanted was time... If all he needed (coughs) was a sort of a period to wait until reinforcements arrived or the Americans or whatever, Mm -hmm. why was he not adopting what you might call, you know, an active defensive mode as the French were doing or as indeed the Germans had been Mm. doing for most of 1917?
2: I mean, it's, 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 it's such a good question that The Hague himself devoted an entire section of his l- final dispatch to why I continued, you know, prosecuting attack, an offensive attack. battle. Yes. Because he had been... Pu- this had been pushed on him several times, and certainly Lloyd George wanted him to fight a defensive battle, ideally, but didn't intervene to because but until it was too late to insist. I mean, in fact, Lloyd George wanted to move most of the war to the Italian front, uh, sort of another Gallipoli, a uh, third front in the south, um, which was which was partially adopted, actually, towards the end of 1917. But the, the point is interesting. Um, uh, it's, it goes really to the heart of, of the problem of, of Passchendaele. And, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I wonder sometimes um, why, you know, th- there wasn't some sort of um, meeting amongst the generals to discuss the value of a defensive battle. Because it really, there was a strong case for it in 1917, and we had far superior numbers. The German army had not yet been able to send its troops across from the Eastern Front, where uh, they'd started to come sort of mid to late 1917, uh, early 1918, really. And um, you had. the Commonwealth troops were, had already proven themselves extraordinarily defensive strength of the British at Ypres in the first Battle of Ypres in 1914. Uh, there were other, there were the other case was that the French, as I said before, had recovered far more rapidly than, than Foch and Pétain was, were letting on, and they had actually won a battle in October, 20, 23rd of October against very strong German troops. Um, so, in other words, there was a case for a defensive battle. It would have been pretty horrific... Of course, every battle was, but the point is that it may have held the line until, and it would have expedited, I think, the case for America getting there quicker and the case for the French recovering sooner. I mean, in fact, uh, Foch himself said, join us in a defensive battle. And it didn't sure. happen. It didn't happen. I mean, it didn't play well back home. I mean, in, in, in Haig's own dispatches, he said, this was the, this was the coward's battle. Defensive battle. You sit there in trenches and wait for the enemy to come to you. Of course, forgetting that Germany had fought a defensive battle for three years since, effectively since 1915, ni- early 1915, um, after the after the, the the battle of the Second Battle of Ypres.
1: Um, so, what does this with say? With great courage, um, yeah. I must say. What does this say about military decision making? About political decision making? <laughs> about the advice that comes to the people that are involved and what does it say about why this could never happen again or happen in a modern day?
2: Which one shall
3: I start with? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're sort of like... No, you're, throwing well, no, you're, you're oh, talking, say, for I example, agree. about ha- the mm. personality of Hay. Mm. Now, you've d- disputed in a sense that uh, that Haig could really change sort of things. Mm. But there's no mm. doubt about it that it was Haig's will mm. rather than necessarily the will of his generals that mm. made things go mm. the way they mm. were.
2: I could look at this question because this is a rare example, I think, the moment, October 1917, is a rare moment in history where the strategic and tactical battle impinged on the political, m- the political class or political mind and the cabinet more than any other because was a moment where, if any... Lloyd George should have intervened. Mm. Now, um, the great, um, at the heart of your question is political accountability. Because mm. if, and as I ask in mm. the final chapters, if the generals and Field Marshal Haig had been reduced to just continually sending wave after wave of young men to inevitable slaughter, if that was the only answer you had to the German, tre- to German trench lines, and they tried many other alternatives. Um, you know, they tried, they tried the lightning strike, the novelle offensive of April 1917, which was supposed to sort of smash through in 48 hours and failed dismally. They tried uh, the creeping barrage. Uh, the, uh, and Goff himself tried a, another sort of lightning strike in August 1917. I'm just going through these to show how, exa- how much they exhausted various alternatives. The creeping barrage and the bite-and-hold tactics of, uh, of General Plummer in September 1917 worked to a certain extent because the, the rain stopped. The great problem with Passchendaele, as we haven't mentioned yet, is it was the worst rains in 70 years, which caused, ca- turned the battlefield into a quagmire. Uh, duck, all those scenes of duckboards you've seen in those famous photographs are from Passchendaele. If you got blown off a duckboard into a, a, a liquid mud-filled crater, you drowned, and thousands drowned. They were weighed down by f- 25 to 30 kilos of their pack. Um, that's what I mean by the tactical war imping- should have impinged, and was, to a certain extent, impinging on the political decision-making at the top. Um, Now, humanely, I think we are driven to a question and a conclusion about Passchendaele and Assam. If the generals could find no other way of bashing through using attrition as a method, then surely it should have gone further up to the government, the governments of Europe. Because remember, the Germans were sustaining absolutely colossal casualties. To actually sit down and mediate and talk and try and come up with some kind of negotiated truce. Now, Hague, that's not me saying this from a great distance, mm-hmm. it's Hague himself said this in early 1918 when he was at his lowest ebb, when his own morale had been destroyed by Passchendaele and he managed to rally but he was on the point of getting sacked. Lord George didn't sack him because he was under pressure from the conservatives in the government and the press. And but the king oh and, the and king, his own his cabinet secretary. secretary. I mean, his, his wife was a lady in waiting to the, to, the, to the king and, and, and you know, he had, he's extremely well connected. So, The question is, that is the question it it poses, it it forces us to answer. And my my answer is, it was in my book. I think they certainly should have. And I think they failed the societies they ruled or represented by not doing that. And there were many voices urging some sort of negotiation, some sort of mediation. Not just from the left and from the unions who were on on strike. (laughs) We had the greatest numbers of strike action in 1917 in war factories. So the people were turning against the war. But not just the left and the unions who can be counted upon at that point to oppose the war. Certainly, obviously, that was the year of the Russian Revolution. So the Bolsheviks used, used the slaughter on the Western Front as a political gift. So they, could, they, w- they were hoping for the destruction of the Russian army, which, they, which was a gift to their movement. But um, y- you, 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 just, you just didn't see any attempt to do this because the war had degenerated into one of vengeance. We've lost so many men. What did they fight for? What did they fight for?
1: And anyway, the generals are promising us peace by Christmas.
2: That, that mantra went on throughout, yeah. throughout the war, but Haig himself was in despair mm. at the end of 1917. Uh, that was th- really the blackest year of the war for the, for the Allies and the
1: Germans. Yeah. Now, just go back a second. <coughs> in the way that you've shaped it in the book, and the record very much supports this, the personality of Lloyd George at the political end is... Yeah overwhelmingly the significant one there are people such as the Tories who are saying you cannot sack Haig and who were enthralled to the army if you like but where was the political class generally where was the bureaucrats or whatnot who were actually sort of capable of reviewing the dispatches and the information coming in where was the evidence I mean, as you say, there's plenty of material which suggests that that the war was unpopular and that people knew about the carnage. Why was there not a more active political movement um, well, uh, leading to an end? Very uh, fine question. I mean, it it,
2: it and it's it could be answered succinctly, yeah. I think, uh, with the word um, morale. Morale, but also an effective. I wouldn't say dictatorship, although that word has been used by a Welsh historian of David Lloyd George's cabinet. Mm. Because he had reduced the cabinet to five men mm. and ruled, effectively ruled, he stamped his authority on the whole procedure. He, had, he had surrounded himself with effective yes-men. I mean, they hardly challenged him. Mm. And I suppose one could say that during a, ba- a war, you need to have fleet-footed decision-making. You need to be able to override the bureaucracy. The War Office was, uh, were opposing many of the decisions Lord George made, but they were effectively reduced to a, to a, uh, to a well, to an ineffective ju- uh, f- influence at cabinet level. Uh, Lord George but was really. But inc- they were acting
1: any, in any event as yeah. agents of the generals rather than as yeah, of that's agents right, that's right. of the and public and interest.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so was that, Henke. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, and certainly and certainly certainly the War Office were aghast at at a lot of Lloyd George's decisions, such as the novella well, the He's a
1: vulgar event. little Welshman. Wasn't <laughs> he?
2: Well, uh, uh, certainly Haig regarded him as a vulgar little Welshman. Um, he was, uh, there's probably not the time to fully n- navigate the circumference of this <laughs> colossus of British politics, but <laughs> yeah. he was a cottage bred Welsh opportunist, as Haig calls him. Uh, you know, a, a, a monstrous influence in many ways, an extraordinary man, a brilliant orator, a brilliant manipulator of events, yeah. a great. Uh, he, o- he, was, he really didn't stand for anything as such. You couldn't. St- you couldn't take Lord Jones and said he stood for this or that. He d- admitted this himself. Yeah. He said, I can't really identify what I'd really stand for, but I know it at the time, effectively paraphrasing one of his comments. But he did the stand... The Brenda
1: f- Nelson of his day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs>
2: whoa! <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment on that, but he, he, uh, he certainly, um, he certainly uh, w- w- was opposed throughout his reign, if you can call yeah. it that, to inherited wealth. And that's the starting point of his distrust and uh, dislike of Haig. Because Haig, of course, was the inheritor of immense wealth through the Haig whiskey distillery. Yeah. I mean, he was a, a high-born, lowland Scot, aristocratic, aristocratic pedigree, um, went to all the right schools. And here's this upstart, as Haig viewed him, actually taking command from his behind his back and handing it to the French... So what you saw after that disastrous uh, act, or incredibly um, disloyal act, of Lloyd George's, their relationship plunged into. It wasn't. This wasn't just a, f- a breakdown in, in political relationship at the highest level. It was deeply personal, absolute personal loathing, visceral hatred between these two men, playing out with one eye, with p- two eyes, well, four eyes on the history book, how they would be viewed, how le- how they would be viewed it with hindsight, and, and jockeying for power, using an appalling struggle on the Western Front to shore up their influence and their power. On the one hand, we see Haig determined to at least to take Passchendaele Ridge because that was his fallback position. That was what he said. If I don't get to the coast, at least I will de- definitely take Passchendaele Ridge. And if he didn't take that, then certainly, and this is the flip side to the other question, from Haig's point of view, if he didn't take Passchendaele Ridge, Lloyd George then would have hung him out to dry, destroyed, not only sacked him, but destroyed his reputation forever. He succeeded in doing that to some extent 30 years later with his memoir. But at the time, of course, they took Passchendaele Ridge. It, It lasted a couple of months because the Germans in the spring offensive, the beginnings of the spring offensive, um, it, took it in a few, few days, pretty much, and, and forced the, the Allied armies back to the gates of Paris. Mm. Um, a miracle that we actually were victorious. And um, Lloyd George himself had said, Passchendaele did more to risk and jeopardise our chances of victory over the Germans than any other battle. And to some extent, I agree with him. Mm. And the, the, the analysis is in the book. I um, don't have time probably to go into the, the details of that comment. This
1: was the war to end all wars. It was the first, well, if you exclude the American Civil War, I suppose, but the first sort of c- really total war on, on Europe's shores. Millions died, millions of civilians died, people starved, um, and we all dedicated ourselves to the idea that there would be no more war again. Did we actually learn anything out of it
2: all? Is d- d- um, could throw that open to the audience, actually. Did
1: <laughs> we learn anything at
2: all? Looking at what happened tw- 25, 30 years later, uh, some historians now regard World War I and World War II as a continuum. Yeah. As a, 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 we had the Weimar, a, a blip of peace in the middle, a, the Jazz Age, a massive depression, hyperinflation in Germany, and then the resumption of total war. Uh, what did we learn? At the time of 1917, I'll tell you what Lord Lansdowne learned. So, in other words, to take it back to the actual time, rather than for us and for me to to pontificate, I can give you my views of whether we learned anything, but this is what he learned at the time. And Lord Lansdowne, you have to remember, is a a, a Tory statesman, former foreign secretary. So the last man you'd think would be talking this so-called defeatist talk. But he said, we're not going to lose this war. He wrote to the papers, he publicised this. He wrote, we're not going to lose this war, but it's prolongation will spell the ruin for the civilised world and an infinite addition to the load of human suffering which already weighs upon us. What will be the value of the blessings of peace, he asks, to a nation so exhausted that they can scarcely stretch out a hand with which to grasp them? (laughs) And that is what he took from what was happening. Um, What have we learned from this battle? I see now people, historians, experts, military um, specialists saying that we had to fight World War I to crush German tyranny. There's been a big debate in the BBC earlier this year involving that, that very question, should we have fought World War One? And um, the pros, yes, we should have fought World War I, resoundingly won the debate. I would have been on the other side. Now, what astonished me about that debate was that, yes, we won World War One, but they didn't actually properly address for what, for what were we continuing the slaughter for and what... Was it going to... And Niall Ferguson is very interesting on this point. We won't go into into his his book. But one of the questions um, was the pro side that we had to crush German tyranny. They were likening it to Nazi Germany, which is an astonishing thing when you think about it. Nazi Germany was nothing like Germany of the first decade of the 20th century, where you had a country as democratic as Britain's, Mm. one man, one vote. You had the first welfare state or the first... Welfare structure bo- embedded in politics through the Bismarckian reforms, which you know Kaiser Bill did l- largely try to dismantle, but the legacy of it was still there. You had a country that, yes, was a, a democracy, although the one thing you didn't have, however, was a constraint or a, a hand to hold back the Prussian military caste. And as they gained power, they gained more power with every failure of us of ours, to intervene and negotiate and talk to the civilian government. The French didn't speak to them in 10 years. Um, and their economic power was, was, was well they were the, the, lo- the, the economic locomotive of Europe. So there was that that, that they, obviously, the British Empire did not like. And they wanted a slice of empire. Um, the, Re- the French, the British, and the Russians commanded most of the world. So we look at Germany, a very different country. Um, the question was, if they had been, if Kaiser Bill's regime had been the tyranny that the pro-World War I brigade make out, why then would one of these historians have said, have answered, yes, no, we shouldn't have gone to war if Germany had honoured Belgium's borders? I mean, you can't have it both ways. It's either a tyranny which we need to crush, regardless of whether Germany honoured or breached Belgium's borders. So, we see, see there's an incoherence there which still exists to this day. But I believe that even um, Gray, Edward Grey in his <laughs> lukewarm and rather, rather battered and fragile way was trying to mediate right up until the July crisis when it was too late. Um, but there was this hope that mediation could intervene. They'd done it in 1905. They'd done it in 1911 with the Agadir crisis, 1905 the Moro- uh, first Moroccan crisis. They'd done it in 1912 and 1913 with the first two Balkan wars. And, and initially the the war, the First World War, was initially called the Third Balkan War. Enjoy. Mm. Uh, so these questions should be asked rather than to retrospectively say this was another Nazi Germany. We needed to crush them. I mean, an extraordinary uh, looking at reading
1: history backwards. But one of the other, oh, sorry, one of the other sort of aspects <coughs> of it, though, it is so if you look at modern wars such as Afghanistan and Iraq, I- and almost certainly, vi- well, definitely Vietnam as well, mm. you have. Decisions being made rightly or wrongly, usually wrongly to intervene, but the nature of the battles, the nature of the struggles, inexorably changing and then inevitably sucking in more resources, changing the way that uh, people are doing it. More (coughs) and more generals insisting that if only we get this, we can have the troops home by Christmas. Seeing light at the end of the tunnel... um, In the case of Vietnam, going from, you know, 20,000 troops to half a million troops in Afghanistan, being there forever, the combined length of um, the first and the second wars. Mm. Well, it makes my blood boil, actually, to see
2: the lack of accountability at the the political level. War after war after war. And recently, uh, some of you may have read the Chilcot Inquiry. Mm. Um, well, it's a million words or so, but so probably not. But the first 150 pages of the executive summary, which is very interesting, because this is really a kind of inquest into war. It's kind yeah. of looking at a civilian written committee of inquiry mm. into why, we, why Britain went into Iraq. Yes. And it's an astonishing document. I mean, it, 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 it basically throws the book at the Blair government of the day. Um, it stops short of calling anyone a war criminal, and I don't think Blair was, but, but certainly the government had did fail to exhaust the routes towards a negotiated peace or, or some sort of way where we could stay out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Not a peace, but they, they'd failed to look at... Uh, to account to parliament. They failed to debate or account to the people. I mean, th- the litany of charges goes on and on, and it's an incredible document. Had, had our governments been aware, possibly, of a Chilcot inquiry at the end of uh, Vietnam and these other wars, perhaps they would have thought a little more carefully about... I doubt it. But it's nice to think, isn't it? They would have thought a a little bit more carefully before Menzies decided to take us to Vietnam without any parliamentary discussion or or debate. I mean, in my book in Vietnam takes us through that in detail. Uh, Now, I I, I, I probably sound to some of you like I'm being quite judgmental, and and I suppose in a discussion like this, we're allowed to be, aren't we? But my books take a very set course. For the nine-tenths, or pretty much 98% of them, give or take. Uh, they are charting in a narrative. They're looking at what happened and I look at all sides. I look at all voices. I look at the left and the right. I look at Japanese and Australians in Kikoda. Some reviewers didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at what's happening. You take the story forward with a sort of symphony of voices and you try to bring that together as a narrative. But in my last chapter, I think I owe it to the reader to, to give my views. And to d- I've done all this work. It's, it's a, I think it's only fair that I should make some sort of judgment. So what we're discussing here, I suppose, are my judgments. I don't want you to think I'm writing polemics here. I, it, this mm-hmm. is, this is, I'm trying to actually get to the bottom of what happened from various perspectives.
1: Yep. Now, the political accountability is the critical <coughs> one, but yeah. there's also another question, which is military accountability. And there's a Canberra aspect of this that I just sort of want to raise. When they started building Canberra, the Walter B- Burley Griffin's plan, um, just uh, west of Mason Street or north of Mason Street, we built a vast windbreak to protect Canberra from the dust blowing in. And we called it Hague Park. I can see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> is it time to think about changing the name? <laughs> it, let me tell you, it is named after Sir Douglas Hague. No, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. They're having this battle in England with
2: at Oxford or Cambridge over the Rhodes, Rhodes statue, yes. Cecil Rhodes' statue, now damned as a slave driver. Um imperialist. Imperialist. And until recently, a great man uh, who opened up Africa for trade, etc. Uh, the Rhodes Scholarship, named after him. I'll have to rename that, I suppose. I, I, um, I, I suppose I'm in the unfashionable position of saying, no, they should not change it. And the reason I say that is because... There is, a case for, uh, there is a case for negative history. Mm-hmm. There is a case for sustaining the controversy. There's a case for people saying, why is that named after Hague? If anything forces us to confront history, it's that we do not have all these comfortable shibboleths and, to- and totems around us, named after great men and great women who we all love and adore. I think we need to drag the misery with us to a certain extent, and we need to focus on why this is named after Haig. We need to know that this man was responsible for sending the best part of our youth, and British youth, into battle in the Western Front, knowing that they were going to be slaughtered. Now, this is an unpopular view, I'm sure, amongst many of you and amongst many uh, many younger people, but um, how else are we going to know what happened if we simply expunge from the record what actually happened? using
1: these totems, if you like. Couldn't we find a few of our own villains there? An Abbott Park or something (laughs) like that? I can think of many villains. We can name many parks after. (laughs) (laughs) On
0: that note, (laughs) um, I'd just like to thank um, both Paul and Jack. Um, I hate to bring the discussion to a close, but um, this is an opportunity for you, the audience, to, to ask Paul some questions. Um, We do have a microphone that Hugh has, Um, so if you raise your hand, please wait for the microphone, um, because we are recording this and it also goes through the hearing loop. Um, But to kick us off, I'm actually going to ask a question, which I very rarely indulge myself doing. Um, From someone who's walked um, these battlefields and cemeteries several times, um, this whole notion of is it worth it, um, for me, um, the answer is no, when you... go into Hooge crater cemetery and many others and you see one headstone that says um, he lies the remains of 16 Commonwealth soldiers that to me is a reason not to do this Um, but you talk about uh, your books being a symphony of voices um, and we've talked about controversy a little bit so I thought we'd start with this question and given that you write with this symphony of uh, voices Paul and you have that broad perspective what do you think about the increasing narrow and idealistic Australianism that's surrounding the telling and retelling of our military history, and particularly as it relates to um, the First World War, and I guess traditionally Gallipoli, and now moving into the Western Front?
2: Well, this is the school of history known as, it was the Aussies what won it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as we, we celebrate, the word celebrate is pointed, mm. um, every year on Anzac Day. and um, and rather than commemorate or mourn or acknowledge what happened or stand aside silently and try to understand, even to atone for what happened, as the great writer Richard Aldington makes clear in his excellent novel, Death of a Hero. He asks, how do we atone for 37 million people, casualties, dead, wounded, missing in action, in World War One? the total... Total casualty. How do we atone for that? He asks, and that I think atonement is the word that no one seems to use anymore. It's that one of those. It's kind of an an old-fashioned word that you don't hear much about. What what does atonement mean? We are collectively responsible for what happened in the 20th century. I believe it is living history. I'm speaking every talk I give. I speak to the grandchildren of veterans, uh, 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 relatives of veterans, and what they went through. And so we are in the grip of it. It's living amongst us. I think that Australia is has... There is a dangerous tendency, almost a warped tendency, to zoom in on particular Aussie battles. And I'm, to some extent, you could say I'm guilty of that. But um, if we are going to look at an Australian victory on the Western Front, crucially, that must be set in the context of the Allied and the German... In, and the French v- and the Russian, this vast confrontation, we, of which we were a very small cog. And uh, you can't write about the Western Front as a uniquely Australian experience. I don't believe because it gives, it plays to the audience, it plays to the the the, the popular or populist taste for a good Aussie battle, but it isn't history. And um, take a coda. This was an Australian struggle. But you can't write about Kokoda without going to Japan and sitting down with the Japanese veterans. Because even if we disagree, and of course we all do, of what happened in the, in the Pacific, and, uh, vehemently so. I've written about Sandak- Sandaken, the what happened to the prisoners of war there. I know exactly what the Japanese did to our, to our soldiers. But we need to go and ask them. We need to understand the context of that particular battle, which was uniquely Australian. Uh, no New Zealanders there, and with some National Guardsmen from America, which, of course, you've got to bring them in. That is history. And history is hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard work. (laughs) It's not... You don't don't expect... You don't write it hoping for five stars or, you know, great reviews on Amazon. You know, people have got to rise to the occasion a little and use their brains to get their heads around a bigger picture than it was the Aussies what won it. Because that is what this book is trying to do. I mean, You have to expand it to the Tommy's experience, to the German experience. There's a chapter looking precisely at how the Germans sat in their trenches month after month, watching a creeping barrage come before them, towards them. This monstrous wall of explosive. The guns lined up in one stretch, behind which were hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers. They knew that. They couldn't run. They were going to be shot. They sat there month after month, waiting for this the instrument of their inevitable death or terrible wounding coming towards them, which defensive war, which Haig damned as cowardice. I mean, you, you cannot write about the Western Front without understanding the German experience. I believe that's my view, and uh, to answer your excellent question. <laughs> so
0: we had a question in the middle there?
1: Uh, thanks very much for a great conversation so far. Uh, the press. Could go <laughs> off a cliff now. <laughs> we, uh, <coughs> in the modern world, I think we, we look to the press to hold up uh, truth against power or truth to power, you know, particularly since the Vietnam War and, uh, and subsequently. But in World War I there were journalists and there were some members of the press who did seek to hold up truth against power. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of the press or the media scape more generally <coughs> and whether or not there was a, a fundamental failure of the press and, and journalism around Passchendaele in particular?
2: Great question. And I could talk at length about it, which I won't. I'll try to keep it concise. The, the excellent journalism that we saw in the Western Front was the exception to the rule. Mm. And you met Charles Bean was one of them, excellent journalist, who managed to cut through with his genius the censorship on many occasions. Certainly Philip Gibbs on the British side, an excellent journalist, um, who also Conveyed something of what was going on, something of the conditions, these appalling conditions. Um, but by and large, the press were, in the, were the tools of of Haig's intelligence, and his his general in charge of intelligence, General Charteris, pretty much ran the press, and fed them what he believed they should be fed, which was, you know, at some time it degenerated to uh, you know a jolly good romp, a victorious romp through the. Uh, through the fla- through Flanders fields and um, northern France to inevitable victory, and uh, photographs of cheering soldiers on their way to the front lines, um, all you know, played played up. I think it was a it was a woeful failure. The media. I think that they were they were often used as propaganda weapons. Certainly, um, the famous case of boiling down prisoners' bodies into soap. Or Edith Cavell, which was the German. Germans were supposedly boiling down prisoners' bodies and using them as extracts for, for all sorts of chemical substances. This was a charterous lie, which he fed to the press, and of course the Daily Mail ran with it. Oh, Astonishing, yeah. isn't it? Um, so I think. Well, whose side were they on? <laughs> yes, as somebody might ask. And when the exactly when the uh, when the um, they certainly had no. If, if truth uh, was the first casualty of war, it was writ large in World War One. But but if they had any responsibility to the truth, it was pretty much snuffed out in late 1917, when they might have started reflecting the popular will against the war. As we saw in the Vietnam, when the people turned against the war, the press turned. The press didn't lead the mood of the people by and large during Vietnam. The people led the press up until '68, the Tet Offensive. That this was a gung ho story against commies in. In, in, in Vietnam. But when they realised the, pr- the people had turned, that's when the press turned. Now, you may dispute that, but in my analysis for the media during Vietnam, and there are exceptions, of course, there are always exceptions, these are generalisations, but in World War I, once they realised the people were turning, Lord George got, on his prop- got out his propaganda unit and did a, the king did a tour of the country, visiting factories, trying to d- encourage workers to go back to work. And once the king appeared, of course, they did go back to work. Yeah. Um, you had the propaganda offensive, was, was, was going across the country. The press was all part of it. So it was, it was a shocking um, uh, dereliction of any kind of duty to the idea of, of the truth.
1: And yet, I, I agree entirely, and I think one of the shameful things is, if you like, not that I actually accept the s- well-crafted version of Keith Murdoch in relation to Gallipoli, but there was no Murdoch, no mm. Murdoch mm. there. Mm. But it was a war fought fairly close to home. British soldiers went on leave. The British populace, certainly the British working class, was well aware of the conditions in the trenches. And they might have been reading jolly, wonderful stuff in the Daily Mail or whatever, but they knew it was crap.
2: Uh, I think, yeah, those stories were coming back. uh, throughout. It was up until late 1916, though, when that really started coming home. With with the the Somme. Yeah, yeah, with the Somme. And whole communities not coming home because the Powell battalions, as many of you know, were, were born of local communities or mm. local workers. Mm. And if a whole community were wiped out, they were bereft of young men, such mm. as Accrington, Accrington in Lancashire. Mm. This sowed the idea that an entire generation of young men were being wiped out. Mm. So, yes, they did know. The rumours were coming back. But the press were muzzled insofar as they were able to, to really portray the d- in detail what was happening in Passchendaele. Um, but people knew. Yes.
0: There.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for uh, a, v- a very interesting discussion. I couldn't help but think when you were talking about the October situation at Passchendaele and the pressure perhaps on Lloyd George to stop Passchendaele and compare it, albeit in a different way, with what happened at Gallipoli. I know Gallipoli is a, you know, not as big um, an offensive, but at least the politicians there listened and sent other generals out to have a look and then decided we must withdraw. Now, is it fair to compare and contrast those issues and Jack asked earlier, what have you learnt from war? I can say as a Vietnam veteran, the son of a World War II veteran and the grandson of a World War I veteran, the one thing I have learnt is don't trust politicians. <laughs> so as a supplementary question, how do we ensure that the Prime Minister, such as what Howard and Menzies did, Can't just turn around and send us to war again. I'll um, endeavour try to
2: answer your your question in reverse. Perhaps Um, we haven't had a Chilcot inquiry here, so that's not going to happen. So accountability will not be will not be exercised. We won't see any accountability for our entry into the Iraq war. and I use the word accountability advisedly because uh, blame is too crude. We're looking at responsib- responsibility to the people mm-hmm. who, were adv- who were ordered to go to war. I believe there should be inquiry into a war of that sort when it was so divisive. Certainly the Vietnam War. There's been no inquiry into the Vietnam War as such. Um, not one that I found. Anyway, uh, it just was something we did. And after it, we, it fizzled out. The soldiers were treated, treated appallingly on their return. And we just wanted to shove it under the under the carpet. Um, The same thing has happened recently with the wars we've sent our young men to. It's not popular anymore. It's not something that, and soon, yes, we will grieve the return of the remains of young soldiers. And that has become a political opportunity rather than almost a a, a moment for serious national self-reflection on what we did. Your question about Gallipoli versus um, Passchendaele, <coughs> very different situations, obviously. But was there a case for comparing them? Yes, I believe there is a case, because you're asking, should they have examined what was going on and intervened? Now, that happened at Gallipoli, and they were you know, bogged down on a beach, beachhead, and uh, uh, Birdwood and other generals did a brilliant job, actually, of getting them off with limited Casualties. Passchendaele was very different. And here we had a battle which was in the grip of the egos, if you like, of two men who despised each other and were driving it forward for their particular personal agendas. That is what is so shocking about Passchendaele. And I don't think that has really been unraveled before, the extent to which their personal egos played such a, a considerable part in prosecuting the war and keeping on going until the ridge was taken. Had they stopped beneath Passchendaele Ridge, well, there was an untenable position. Haig would have been forced all the way back to Ypres to find a solid ground in which to regroup and to consolidate because there was nowhere safe for him to stop in between Ypres and Passchendaele, to get into ta- tactical level. But had he gone back to Ypres and kept on, but kept on bashing away with his artillery and waves of troops, He would have continued prosecuting the attritional war and achieving what he was setting out to do, but he couldn't have sold that. He couldn't have talked about that to the Cabinet. He he would have been in disgrace. The press would have been on to him within moments. It was not politically acceptable. So he pleaded with the Canadian general at the most desperate point of Battle of Passchendaele. They were the only troops he had left. The British, were; their morale was crushed after August. The Anzacs were defeated in September, early October. Just shot to a stalemate. And so he had the Canadians. And that is the most extraordinary story of Passchendaele because General Field Marshal Haig went to the Canadian headquarters. Arthur Curry, General Arthur Curry, the Canadian commander, had said, I'm not sending my men in to this slaughterhouse. I won't do it. So Haig said, OK, can I speak to your officers and some of your men? He went to the Canadian headquarters. He said, look... I'm paraphrasing, but your commander doesn't think you can do it. I mean, Haig, at that moment, knew the psychology of the young soldier perfectly, read it perfectly. Of course they were going to fight as the last men standing to take Passchendaele Ridge, and they did. And Arthur Curry predicted, he said, "Okay, you you go in, and he predicted there'd be 16,000 casualties of this small force. There were 15,600 or 700 casualties. That's how precise... Their, their arithmetic had become in, in actually estimating the casualty levels. Nine Victoria Crosses in a few days, the Canadians earned in taking Passchendaele Ridge, which it was held, as I say, for a few weeks, a couple of months, after almost 300,000 casualties. What lessons... <laughs> I, 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 I'm helpless here. I, I urge you to read the book, really. I, I think that they come out through the process of... of but uh, I thank you for your question, and also interesting to hear that you've had generations subjected to the will of politicians who have shown little or no accountability
3: after the event to what happened. We should
0: have one last question
3: over this. Slide. Yeah, th- thank you for the talk. Um, yeah. So, just a little bit about myself. My grandfather served in Gallipoli, and then he went across and served in Amiens, where he was uh, wounded, and he went through World War Two and. It possibly follows on behind this question and it goes to churchill's legacy um and since reading a little bit about world war one um i'm not so sure that he was actually as deserving of his legacy that is um and i'm just curious for your views on churchill
2: at that point in time after world war one well he he was um you know gallipoli he was basically held up as responsible and he it was his brainchild. I mean, he, he, uh, he was very much behi- behind shifting uh, f- the war to a third front uh, at Gallipoli in the Dardanelles and squeezing Germany in a three-way soft, vice. Soft underbelly. Soft underbelly. Yeah. Um, and it failed, as we all know, the story. Um, then he was in disgrace. He was removed from the cabinet. And he, he came back under Lord George. Lord George and Churchill got on very well. Um, he became the minister of munitions, and uh, did a great job. And you've got to remember that that, that Churchill, in um, I suppose, in trying to redeem himself after Gallipoli, did become a commander on the uh, on the Western Front. He's one of the few politicians who actually seen what was going on, and commanded a, uh, a battalion. Um, yeah. And that's when, by his own account, he yeah. invented the yeah, tank. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> then, of course. I mean so that after the war then it's a mixed it's certainly a very mixed record. But if you judge him entirely on Gallipoli, then as many of us do and many Australians do, then he goes down very poorly in many historians' judgment. I've not written about Gallipoli. I don't I'm not a specialist on Gallipoli. But Yes, he made a colossal error of judgment, but then again, it was an error which cascaded down to the actual landings, to the strategic and tactical battles. It's difficult, I believe, looking at history um, from all these different angles, to, to sheet home responsibility to one man, which is why I do not believe that Haig should be held responsible in a different context for these battles. There were, many, there were all sorts of forces compelling the generals to fight the war as they did, um, and Haig confessed himself that he, was, that he couldn't do it, that it, it, this was bogged down. Uh, Churchill probably had a healthier ego than that Um, and and rarely, if ever, accepted responsibility, um, openly at least. And certainly David Lloyd George um, uh, never accepted responsibility for any of his um, grotesque misjudgments. And 30 years later, if we can expand your point to political responsibility, even in David Lloyd George's memoirs, he, he blames most of the blame we have for Hague, most of the... Uh, I suppose the "Oh, what a lovely war, blackadder" view of World War One comes from, originates from Lloyd George's memoir. That chapter where he blames Hague pretty much for the whole disaster. Mm. And this is this is just a misreading of events. It makes great reading, of course, but it's a misrepresentation of what happened. So Ch- Churchill, yes, you could, you could. A lot of people do blame him, but I, I you can't see it in that light. There are many, all sorts of different confluences of events and forces acting on. On, on these men in power, uh, the great man theory—I don't buy. It's, nor do I buy Tolstoy's theory of the mass will driving history. If we can, <laughs> it's, it's an interplay between the leaders and the led at every level. They're always the, the leader of any, at any level is always under the influence of the will, whether it's the mass will or the will of his immediate uh, subordinates, and they have to act accordingly. And so that's what I mean by history is hard. You just can't look for some sort of easy solution that. And, and identify the baddies you've got to look at the context
0: well unfortunately we are out of time i'd love to keep going now i may shock you here but as you leave tonight you will be able to buy the book <laughs> for a 10 percent discount so please do um and paul will be out